have your Bibles, I welcome you to turn with me in them this morning. Uh, you can actually turn to James chapter 2. We have here, of course, Genesis 15, verse 6, but that is not where we will focus our time today as we are thinking through the various passages of Scripture where this verse, Genesis 15, verse 6, is invoked, at least within the New Testament and the concepts surrounding. So last time we were together, we began our considerations of Genesis 15, verse 6, uh, and we did so in Romans 4. Just to lay a foundation again for what we're talking about, let's first read, and it'll be up here on the screen so you don't have to turn there, in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. In it, the Bible says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast, uh, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. So Abram was in this passage just confused. He was discouraged. And God appears to him in this moment and he comforts him and guides him into peace. Abram questions God in this time, expressing that he expected that he and his wife would have a child, uh, that he would be given this seed, that uh, of, it would, of him would come a great nation. But in fact, he has not had a child. And, and at that time, Abram's chief steward, Eleazar Damascus, was going to be his heir. To this, God then reiterates his promise to Abram, asking him to walk outside, to look at the stars, to believe God. Say, if you can number the stars, so shall your seed be. And it, that is, of course, where we find verse 6, where Abram does exactly that. Hearing the word of God revealed to him according to God's good pleasure, he believed in the revealed word of God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And last time we considered Paul's use of the idea in Romans chapter 4 directly to this concept of imputed righteousness. Abram was declared righteous on that day specifically because he responded to the revealed word of God in faith. And we talked about how this has always been God's design. It has always been God's design that righteousness would come by faith. Righteousness has never been by works. It has never been by the works of the law. It has never been by uh, righteous, self-righteous works. Righteousness has always been by faith alone. Justification has always been by faith alone. So that Abram was declared righteous on that day because he believed the one who had promised and with every generation of humanity, as God has revealed more and more of himself to mankind, the standard has never changed. That any man who will put his faith in the revealed word of God, through this act of faith, God is pleased. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, telling us that without faith it is impossible to please him. Romans 14, warning us that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. But when we exercise faith in the revealed word of God, this pleases the Lord and he accepts that unto righteousness. 
Now, last week we talked about this, and I had intended to define justification, and as I was preaching through, it wasn't in my notes, and I said, I know I put it in my notes, uh, but I, I, I had not transferred those notes over um, to the notes that I used this last week. So let's take just a moment this morning and talk about what we mean when we use this word justification. Uh, a lot of times uh, you'll hear justification defined as just as if I've never sinned. And it's a very easy way to remember the idea of justification. And if you have a hard time remembering it, I, I think it's fine to start as that definition. But, but really, justification does not reflect the idea that I have never sinned or, or the idea of just as if I've never sinned as much as it does the idea that Jesus paid for my sin and I am being declared righteous. So we might define justification as an act of grace by which God pardons a sinner and accepts him as righteous in response to a sinner's faith in the revealed word of God. An act of grace by which God accepts the sinner. He uh, pardons the sinner, excuse me, and accepts him as righteous in response to the sinner's faith in the revealed word of God. And of this definition, we make several notes. First, Justification is an act of grace, and that's what we talked about last week. No man enters into a state of justification by merit, by works, only by God's grace. And second, we see that this grace extends to man, and it declares him righteous, though he is not in himself righteous. That's what we talked about last week when we talked about imputed righteousness, that Jesus Christ bore our sin, and that when we accept that grace... By, by faith, we receive Christ's righteousness applied to us, imputed righteousness. And we know in our New Testament economy that God is just to declare us righteous because Jesus Christ has paid for all sin upon the cross. However, we also see in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus is declared to be the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. To this end, we recognize that it is indelibly written in the heavens that the word of God would be made flesh, that the word of God would dwell among us, and that he would bear the sin of mankind. And this was written in the heavens before man was even formed. And so, though Jesus had not yet paid the price for those sins in Abram's day, in Isaac's day, in Jacob's day, yet in that Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, the God who is outside of time, the God who stands above time, was just and able to declare men righteous on account of what Jesus would do one day, though he had not yet in time done it yet. That future sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was certainly sufficient to declare Abram righteous in his day and Abel righteous in his day and Adam righteous in his day, though Jesus had not yet died on the cross. So that even in the Old Testament, even before Jesus Christ was revealed in flesh, it would still be the finished work of Christ on the cross that is sufficient to cover the sins of all mankind. The true power of justification found in Jesus' finished work on the cross. And any man, uh, Old Testament or new, who would accept the revealed word of God as given to him, he would be declared righteous. That's what we see in Abram's day. That's what we see in our day as well. And so, salvation by grace through faith. Justification by grace through faith. Righteousness by grace through faith. Very clearly laid out in the scriptures. 
Very clearly laid out in Genesis 15. Very clearly laid out in Romans 4. Very clearly laid out in many other passages of Scripture as well. But that isn't, of course, the end of the story. And that's because there's another passage where we find Genesis 15, verse 6 spoken about. You're there in James 2. Justification is spoken about. But it's connected not just to faith, but also to works. And this has been a controversy in the hearts of many in the church in every generation, and one that is worthy of our time addressing this morning. And so today, today we're going to talk about the relationship between faith and works and how the faith and works relationship then connects to justification. And for this study, we find ourselves in James 2, where James is teaching about this idea of faith and works, and he uses the example of Abraham's life. Now, I'm not going to be as thorough in my context today as I was in Romans last week, because James 2 doesn't necessarily require such thorough context in order to to know where we find ourselves within the passage itself. So I'm going to pick up in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, and we're just going to jump right in to the idea here where the Bible says this, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O, uh, o vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers, and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So we think through this passage today. And we, we saw already in Romans 4, Abraham was justified by faith without the works of the law. So that Paul actually told us in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Paul states in no uncertain terms that justification is by faith alone, which, is, which by its very definition demands that it not be of works, but of grace. Because if it's of works, then justification is not related to grace, it's related to debt. If, I, if my works have any merit unto my justification, then God giving me that justification is God paying back a debt that he owes to me based upon things that I have done. It's a transaction of works, of debt. It is no longer a transaction of grace. And it can't be if works are involved. But if justification is extended by faith alone, then it's not about work, it's not about debt, it is about grace. 
And so when Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We find multitudes of scriptural precedent for the idea that salvation, that grace, it's that salvation is by grace, and grace is by faith. And Paul makes it very clear that that means works cannot play a role in justification, or else it is a transaction of debt. So that makes James chapter 2 a little bit difficult, so much so that a lot of people have avoided it throughout the years. Uh, within the debate over the canon, James was one of the final books to be put into the canon because uh, there was some controversy surrounding whether this was consistent with the Word of God. But we find that it is. We just have to understand it properly. And we begin here in verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? First, we must address this question. Can faith save him? And in order to understand this, we must first lay out a little bit of foundation. I'm going to give you a bit of a, of, of a, of a Greek lesson this morning. Uh, I don't do this necessarily all that often, but this is one of the places where understanding, uh, seeing what's happening in the Greek can help us. And for those of you that are using translations other than the King James, you might find that, that the way that this ought to be glossed, is probably glossed a little bit better in your translation than it is in the King James. But I'm going to show you from the Greek where, we, where this question, can faith save him, uh, save him, lays out and how it is answered. But first, let's talk about the word save. When we ask the question, can faith save him? One of the things that we have recognized quite often here at Legacy Baptist Church is that this word save in our Bibles is quite broad. When we think of the word save, our mind immediately goes to the idea of being born again, right? Being justified by grace through faith, and naturally so. However, this is by no means the only way the word save is used in our New Testament. Not by a long shot, in fact. When the woman with the issue of blood comes to Jesus and touches his garment, if that she may just be made whole in Matthew 9... That word made whole is the word saved, the same word. When Peter is walking on water and he looks around at the waves about him as he's on the water and he begins to sink and he cries out to the Lord, Lord, save me. That's the same word, save. When Lazarus is dead and Jesus looks at his disciples in John 11 and he says, Lazarus is sleeping and the disciples, they respond in verse 12 and they say, well, if he sleep." He do well. That's a, that's, that's, that's a good thing if he's, if, if he's just asleep. That phrase, he does well, that's the word save. So that what we find then is this word save in the New Testament does not speak only to being justified. It does not speak only to being born again. It can mean physical healing. It can mean deliverance from sorrow. It can mean deliverance from pain or from persecution or from bondage. It can mean a form of wellness in contrast to sorrow or pain or death. It can mean deliverance from the consequences of actions, the deliverance from the consequences of decisions. All of those things are entirely within the realm of possibility as related to how this word save is used and what this word save can mean. So it is not directly the case here that we can say without question can faith save him is speaking to justification by grace through faith. 
It would be foolish for us to assume that James is invariably speaking about being born again as it relates to his question here without first looking into the context and seeing what the context has to say. But the actual nuance of this question goes even much deeper than that. And I believe it does, in fact, touch upon justification. And we see that as as James invokes here Genesis 15. But in a much deeper way than just asking the simple question, can faith save a man? From a purely rational perspective, can faith save him? Well, faith can save anyone if they have faith. But that's not what James is getting at with his question here. And as I said, this is where knowing a little bit of Greek can be supremely helpful. With many, I'd say most places in the, in the scriptures, because we have good translations today, you don't necessarily need to be able to fall back upon the Greek to, to relate yourself to, to what's being said. But in this case, at least in our King James uh, Bibles, it helps us quite a bit. There's a way in Greek to ask a question which indicates the answer that one expects to receive. We sort of have the same idea in English. I can ask a question in a manner by which I let you know what I believe the answer to that question should be by the manner in which I ask it. If I were to say, can faith really save a man? Well, the manner of me asking that question implies what? No. Right? But if I said, cannot faith save that man? Well, the manner that I ask that question implies yes. The manner in which I asked the question can imply the answer that I'm looking for. Well, Greek has the same thing, except it's a little bit more more well-established in the Greek, indicated by the use of one of two negative particles. Sorry, let me... I wonder if this thing's running out of batteries. There it goes. I don't know what's happening this morning with the notes. But this is the slide I was looking for. Very good. Um, So we see here two different, and you see on the left there that that there's a little bit of Greek. Uh, The first negative particle is the negative particle may. The second negative particle is the negative particle ooh. Now, when may is combined with an indicative verb, and for those of you that were here many years ago on Tuesday nights, you know what that means. The rest of you, don't worry about it. That's not... It doesn't matter. But when this construction is in place, the implied answer to the question is no. When U plus the indicative verb is in place, the implied answer to the question is yes. One more thing I want to lay out in the Greek before we come back to James 2 and think through it. In Greek as in English, a definite article is attached to another word to emphasize the quality of identity. The definite article in English is the, right? So if I were to say the cat walked the fence, the is the definite article, which assumes that we know the cat that is being spoken of. There's a cat. We know who that cat is. The cat walked the fence. If I told my wife I saw the cat today, we, that by, by, by the nature of the way that I said that, we would assume, you would assume, if you heard me tell my wife I saw the cat today, that there is a particular cat that we know of, and it's the cat. And so when I say the cat, my wife knows the cat that I'm talking about. 
That's very different from the indefinite article in English. If I told my wife, I saw a cat today, there's no particular cat that I'm speaking of. Simply, we're no longer talking about the identity of a particular cat. We're talking about the essence, the quality, or the character of a cat. So it is a cat, not the cat. That would be the indefinite article, a cat, which indicates it doesn't matter which cat is being spoken of, only that it is a cat. Now, the Greek does not have an indefinite article. And the Greek article, the, the, the definite article, or the Greek article, roughly corresponds to the English uh, definite article, if you're following my grammar this morning. And generally, when the article, the Greek article, is attached to a word, we would call that a substantive, this will emphasize the substantive's identity. The cat, right? When we're supposed to know what cat that is, the cat walked the fence. When the Greek substantive lacks the article, we would say in, in English, we, we generally ascribe that to an indefinite article, but when the Greek substantive has no article written in it at all, no, no definite article, this will emphasize that substantive's essence, quality, or character. A cat walked the fence. Doesn't matter which cat. The emphasis is not on which cat. Only the fact that it bears the characteristics or the quality of a cat. And this is a very simple and boiled down idea regarding the Greek article. When the article is present in the Greek then, there are a vast number of possible ways that it can influence the translation of a word. And one of the ways that the article can affect the translation of a word is what's called anaphorically. The word anaphora in the Greek means to bring back. And the idea of the article being used anaphorically is that the article exists before a word specifically to reference the kind of word being described based upon the context. And now that I've given you all of this stuff, let me relate it to James so that you can kind of put it all together. James asks a question, well, two questions here, right? The first question is, what doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? This is a very general question, right? A very general interrogative. What does it profit? Not a question begging for an answer. This is a question looking for a response. It's a setup for something else. James is asking this question to set up the next question. And the next question is the one that we're focused on. Can faith save him? This one asks for an answer. Now let me break down for you the Greek. Here I give you the King James translation. Can faith save him? That corresponds to this Greek phrase below it. And I give you where each word corresponds within the scope of the translation. And then you have a very literal translation. Able, the faith to save him. Notice first that the question begins with may plus the indicative. Not ooh plus the indicative. What that means, if you recall, that means that when Paul is asking the question, can faith save him, we know what answer he's looking for. No. The answer to this question, as uh, James, excuse me, not Paul. The answer to this question as James writes it and asks it is in fact no. Second, Well, first, this is, you know, to some surprising and confusing, right? After all, we have letter after letter in the text telling us that faith is what saves from sin. 
So now we ask again, what kind of salvation is James speaking of here? Is he talking about justification or is he talking about some other deliverance? Well, we'll leave that question on the shelf for a minute and we'll finish up our little Greek exercise here. Then we'll keep moving on in the text. So we know now that James unambiguously expects the answer to this question, can faith save him, to be no. But notice as well, as I've highlighted here, that the substantive faith has the article. Meaning that this phrase is intended to emphasize identity rather than character or quality. So in other words, a literal translation, as you see here, would be able the faith to save him? Is the faith able to save him? But here's the problem with that translation. That doesn't make any sense. The faith. Now, it doesn't mean that we haven't seen the idea of the faith in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, Jude uses this idea. He says, I wanted to write unto you about the common salvation, but instead I am writing to contend for the faith once delivered. And the idea there is that there is this body of truth that is called the faith. So that if we said, I'm going to contend for the faith, the idea of contending for the faith is that I'm not contending for my faith or for your faith. I'm contending for the body of truth that we have put our faith in, right? And yet here that doesn't really fit. Can the faith save him? Can the body of truth that is the faith save him? That's not, well, I mean, we could ask that question. Can a person be saved by the faith? And you'd say, well, if it's the faith, if it's the body of truth, then yes. But that's not, that, that doesn't make sense within context. He just asked about faith and works, right? He's not asking about the faith and works. He's asking about faith and works. So that doesn't make, make sense at all. And this is where the anaphoric use of the article comes in. As I said, the, uh, the, the idea of the anaphoric use is that the article is referencing something previous and it's making direct reference to it. In this case, the anaphoric use of the article would change the faith to this faith. Can or is this faith able to save him? What faith is this faith? Well, the faith by which a man says he has faith but has no works. Does that kind of faith, is that kind of faith effective faith? Is that kind of faith effectual faith? And I believe that's actually what we're seeing here. Now, as I said, if you have a, a translation other than a King James translation, you might find in various other modern translations, this gloss is already in there for you. Can this faith or this kind of faith, save him. And if you have that in your Bible, that's a good gloss. That's a good translation. The King James, this is not a wrong translation. It is consistent with how you can interpret or translate the Word of God for it to be there. However, I don't believe it's the best translation. And this is not the only time where the King James does not adequately reflect the meaning which any particular author is intended to convey. We acknowledge that no translation is without flaw. Because any effort to pass meaning from one language to another language is inherently difficult and ambiguous. The reasons why we use the King James are not because we believe it to be a flawless translation, nor because every uh, translational decision that was made back in 1611 we find better than any other translational decision that has been made. But we do, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, find the King James translation to be the most faithful translation 
of the text in English without controversy in my mind and is also one of the very few translations which are not translated from a Greek text which we believe to be fundamentally flawed both in content and in philosophy. As many of you know, as it relates to our standing, we use the King James not necessarily for the sake of the King James, but because we believe that the Greek text that undergirds the King James, which is a different Greek text than undergirds every translation since the late 1800s with the Revised Standard Version, we believe that the Greek text that undergirds the King James, which is different, is a better text than the one that is being used by modern translations today. That is why we place our loyalty primarily upon the King James Version of the Bible. And then we recognize as well that it is a very good translation, but that doesn't mean it's a perfect translation. And we acknowledge that as well. So then as we think through the idea here in James chapter 2, verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Can this kind of faith, can the kind of faith that is in word but not in deed actually be a saving faith, be an efficacious faith? Is this faith ever in any context, whether we're talking about justification by faith alone or whether we're talking about faith in the promises of God, is a faith that has words but no actions, a faith that has words but no substance, is it actually real faith? Well, no, it's not. And that's what James is saying here. And we'll parse this down a little bit more as we continue through the message. Any man saying that he believes something but doesn't actually live it doesn't actually believe it. That's the idea here. What proves what a man believes is not what a man says. What proves what a man believes is what a man does. So that a man can do any particular action without that action being motivated by faith. We'll talk more about that later. But a man cannot actually believe something without his faith in that thing fundamentally affecting how he acts. And that's what James is saying as he continues. He says, If a brother or a sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful for the body, what doth it profit? What good is all that you say about faith, is all that you say about you believe, uh, that, that you believe if it doesn't affect the way that you act? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Faith, by definition, fundamentally will affect the way I live my life. We talked last week about the chair, right? I can say that that chair will hold me up when I sit on it. I can pronounce my certainty in that conviction. But if when it's time to sit down, I refuse to sit in that chair... Regardless of what I've said, I have not proven any faith in that chair if I won't sit in it. Or if I string up an elaborate system of pillows or of nets underneath the chair before I'm willing to sit in the chair while professing at the same time the chair's integrity. And then I sit down while the chair holds me up, but no one can say that I actually believed it would hold me up because I put a plan B and a plan C and a plan D in place just in case the chair failed. You might say I was willing to trust the chair, but you certainly can't say I believed in the integrity of the chair if I put all of those systems in place to protect me against its lack of integrity. That's not faith. 
Where there is faith, works will inevitably follow. And that's what James is saying here. As James continues then, he uses Abraham to illustrate his point. I'm going to skip some verses. We jump to verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works his fa- uh, was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. So James now connects two passages in Genesis related to Abraham. He connects uh, the passage that we're studying now, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That is that prototypical foundational statement of righteousness by faith. And he connects this to Genesis 22, of course. We'll get there in, in, in a little while. Where God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac upon the altar. Spoiling the story for you, skipping ahead a little bit. Abraham is given a son. That son's name is Isaac. He circumcises Isaac on the eighth day. He loves his son. Between him and his wife, Sarah. And one day he is told that he he must go sacrifice that son. And Abraham does it. He obeys. He gets his son and he walks toward the mount that God had had told him that he was going to sacrifice him on. We don't see any doubt as we did in Genesis chapter 15 at this point. Abraham was confident. Now, he was not necessarily... that It doesn't mean that he knew everything that, that God was going to do. As a matter of fact, we find in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 19 that what Abraham was fully convinced God was going to do was that he was actually going to slay his son in obedience to the Lord's command and then the Lord was going to resurrect him from the dead. And that's what Abraham believed was going to happen. But one way or another, here is what he knew. He knew that God had given him the son of promise, that this was the son of promise, but he also knew that God was telling him to sacrifice his son, and he didn't understand how they came together. But at this point in his life, he was fully convinced that he was just going to do what the Lord had said. And so he does it. And obviously, the Lord does not ask him of his son. Reading in Genesis chapter 22, verse 12, God says, "'Lay not thine hand upon the lad.'" Neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And the way James describes these two accounts is likewise. On the day that Abraham heard the promise that he would be given a son, back in Genesis 15, verse 6, he believed God and he was justified. But here's the problem with this idea of Abraham believing God, or anyone believing God. Anyone can say they believe. But just because someone says they believe doesn't mean they actually do believe. And this is where Genesis 22 comes in. On that day, God tested if what Abraham said he believed was actually believed. Now, did God know in Genesis 15 that Abraham had genuinely believed? Obviously. Number one, God knows all things. Number two, we see that it was counted for him for righteousness on that day. Abraham believed. But we don't know. We don't know until Genesis 22, really. God told Abraham that Isaac was the child of promise. Now God was telling him to kill his child. Does Abraham believe God? Genesis 15 tells us he did. Genesis 22 shows us he did. And so James says on that day, 
Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. Abraham was not justified. Abraham was justified back in Genesis 15. In Genesis 22, Abraham was not justified. In Genesis 15, Abraham was justified. But in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham's faith was justified. Abraham was justified in Genesis 15. Abraham's faith was justified in Genesis 22. That's what James 2 is teaching about. Works do not justify the man. Works justify the man's claim of faith. Faith justifies the man. Works justify the faith. That's the idea. So James chapter 2, verse 22 says, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. By works, faith is not established. Faith exists without the works, but the works are the thing that perfects or fulfills the faith, that makes the faith, that justifies the faith, that proves the faith. Let's lay out what this means. James is not saying here that faith alone is insufficient to justify a man. No, faith alone is sufficient to justify a man. James is instead highlighting how faith is only and ever validated through the works that that faith produces. So that if a man says he has faith, but he does not manifest the works that are consistent with the faith he claims, then that faith is dead. It's empty. It's alone. It did not produce the works which faith inevitably and invariably will produce. Therefore, it is no faith to begin with. It's a claim of faith, but it's not faith in substance. So that Abraham, again, was not justified unto righteousness by works. He was justified unto righteousness by faith. But we know that that faith was real. James uses the word perfect, which perfect does not mean flawless or sinless in the Bible. The word perfect in our Bible means finished or complete, having all that is necessary unto something's nature or kind. So this faith was perfected. It was completed. It was finished. It showed the fullness of its own nature on the day that Abraham lived out that faith by being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham's works justified his claim of faith. The claim of faith that justified his soul. Abraham's sinful soul justified by faith. Abraham's faith justified by the works that his faith produced in him. And so that we know Abraham's faith was genuine because seven chapters later in Genesis we see him live out that claim of faith in the way that he lived his life. The direct fruit of his faith was his willingness to trust God and lay his son on that altar. The son that God had promised to him in Genesis 15. Two points of application as we close today. Point number one. Works do not imply faith, but faith will always produce works. The first thing that I want to establish carefully this morning is this. Just because a person does some moral work, it does not necessarily mean that that moral work is done because of faith. The faith works relationship 
as we see it in James, is a one-way street. Every person who has faith will see in their lives works that are produced consistent with that faith. Every person that has faith will see works produced in their life consistent with that faith. But that does not mean that every person who produces a work in their life necessarily has faith. Every believer who reads and believes the commands and the promises associated with obeying their parents. Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Every believer who reads that and believes that will produce, will have in their lives, based upon their faith, the work produced of honoring their parents. But there are any number of self-righteous and ulterior reasons why a person might obey and honor their parents as well. So that when I look at my own works, I cannot say intrinsically that because I'm doing some moral work, that means I have faith in God. But what I can say is if I claim to have faith in God, but it's not producing in me said work, I don't have any faith in God. One-way street. This is to validate whether or not my faith is genuine, not to validate whether or not someone else has faith. Just because a man does a moral action, it does not mean, it's not a definitive mark of his faith in God's revealed word. So the limitation of this teaching and the limitation of our confidence from James 2 is this. Manifestations of works are not sufficient into them, in themselves to know that a person has faith. But that's okay because it's not for me to judge whether or not another person has faith or not anyway. Thank God I don't have to judge another man's soul, another man's intentions, another man's heart, or another man's claims. But what I can judge is this. If I say I have faith, but the works that I'm living in my life are not consistent with what I claim to believe, then I might mentally know it. And so that, in that sense of believe, sure, I believe it. But I don't have James chapter 2 faith. I don't have Genesis 15, 6 faith. If what I claim to believe is not, does not produce a work that is consistent with that claim in my life, then that's because I don't actually believe it. No exceptions. My life doesn't reflect what I say I believe. And that doesn't mean that I don't think that the thing is true. It doesn't mean I don't want that thing. But it does mean that I have not come to the place in my life, in that area of my life, where what I know to be true has transitioned to what I actually believe in my heart. Because when what I know to be true or what I want in my life transitions to what I believe, it will invariably affect what I do. That is what faith is. That's the essence of biblical faith. Not every man that does moral things does so because he believes in the commands and promises of God. Maybe a man is doing moral things so that he can earn favor with God in a self-righteous manner. Maybe a man does moral things to impress his family or his society or the culture, the community, the church that he's in. Maybe a man is doing moral things simply because that's his natural predisposition. And his desire, because he likes the way he feels when he does those moral things. None of those motivations for doing moral things is faith. Those motivations are entirely carnal, are entirely self-righteous. But 
This is the one-way street idea. Every man whose knowledge of God's promises and commands has transitioned to faith in his heart will without fail and without exception produce, have produced in his life. He won't produce it, but that faith will produce in his life those things that God expects. Not to perfection, mind you. I'm not saying that the man who falters in his life has no faith, but the man... That man, when he confesses his sins, God is faithful and just to forgive him of his sins. He is restored back to fellowship. He gets up and he gets going again. But if a man has not produced works, it's because he's not exercised faith. Now, as I've said all of this, it's entirely possible that several in this room have completely misunderstood me. Misunderstood the context of these statements. And I hope that this second point will clarify this a little bit, particularly as it relates to if anyone in here is trying to think about this as it relates to saving faith. Point number two. If you want to know whether you have a certain faith, look for the certain works which that certain faith inevitably produces. Notice the way I phrase this. If you want to know whether you have a certain faith, look for the certain works which that faith produces. Follow me here, Christian. We as Christians have a tendency to put faith into a very simple and singular box. This is faith. I have faith or I don't have faith. Faith is when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Once I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I have faith. Right? I've exercised faith and that faith will produce works in me. But this is very simplistic. It's overly simplistic, Christian. There is a way that we can describe our whole belief system as the faith. We already talked about that, right? There is the faith. But that's not talking about your exercising of faith. That's talking about the body of truth. But perhaps you have noticed, those of you who are believers, that faith doesn't really fit nicely into a single box of, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. You have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Thank God. You have no doubts that Jesus is person, uh, no doubts in his person, in his work, that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day. You have no doubts in the sufficiency of Jesus' finished work to justify you and to reconcile you to God. But just because you have faith in this promise, that doesn't mean you have faith in everything Jesus has taught, does it? Is not your whole life a process of learning to have faith in the things that Jesus has taught? Is that not the process, not of justification, but of sanctification? Just because the disciples believed that Jesus was the Savior doesn't mean they passed every test of faith, does it? And just because they didn't pass every test of faith doesn't mean they stopped believing that Jesus was their Savior. Just because you believe, Christian, that Jesus is the only way unto reconciliation with God, this does not mean that you believe every command that Jesus gave to you. Now, you will acknowledge that every command that Jesus gave is true. You will acknowledge that every command that Jesus gave is right. But that doesn't mean you've put your trust in every single one of them yet. How do I know that? Okay. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Take no thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Rhetorical question. I don't want to see any hands here. How many of you, though you have all confidence in Jesus Christ as your Savior, struggle with the command to take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself? 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, I've already invoked it today. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Rhetorical question. Don't want to see any hands here. How many of you, though you have all confidence in Jesus Christ as your Savior, have struggled honoring your father and mother? And I could go on, could I not? Command after command after command. Promise after promise after promise. And we would all acknowledge that we both know and we agree that we should trust Christ with our tomorrow. Nobody in here is going to say, nope, I just don't believe that. I don't believe Jesus was right about that one. No, you do. You do. No one's going to say, I don't believe Jesus was right about obeying and honoring your parents. You do. You believe it. You believe it. You believe that we should love our enemies. You believe we should give generously. You believe that we should speak only edifying words. You believe that we should forgive as Christ forgave. But only a subset of all that we know and we agree to, we have faith in. How do I know that? Because if you had faith, faith in it, you'd be doing it. Because faith produces works. And if you want to know whether or not you have that certain faith, in any single one of these things, there's actually a very simple, no exceptions test on how to find out. And it's not whether you claim to believe it. It is what your life is producing. That's the test. That's James 2. Do the actions of your life align with the commands that you know are true? If it doesn't, well then, you still know it's true. But you haven't come to faith in it yet, Christian. You don't actually believe it yet. Well, Pastor, that's kind of offensive. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It is. It's offensive to think that I've been a follower of Jesus Christ for some odd 30 years of my life, and yet I still struggle to have faith in His promises. I don't like that. But maybe the reason why I'm still struggling is because I'm not willing to actually face up to the fact that I'm struggling in my faith. Because I've had this idea that, well, I accept Jesus as my Savior, so I have faith. You have faith. You have faith in Jesus as your Savior, but you have faith in Jesus as provider, as protector, as sustainer. Do you have faith in Jesus as authority? What are the limits of your faith? Faith will always and inevitably produce the certain works that are consistent with the certain faith of which I am speaking. And by the way, this is the same with faith unto justification. This is the same with saving faith as well. Saving faith does produce a work, but maybe not the ones you've been thinking about in the past. Perhaps you've been there before where you or someone in your circle has looked at someone that's living in a way that is perhaps not, um, not great and you said, I wonder if they're saved. Someone struggling with sin in their life, and you said, there's no way that a person can be sinning that sin and still be born again. And what you're doing there is you're making a positive connection in your life between a statement of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and a work that is being produced in their lives, or in this case, not being produced in their life. So let's do a quick exercise. 
If I have faith in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. What is the work that I would expect that faith to naturally produce in my life. Just this one little snippet. I've already accepted Jesus as my Savior. I have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling. I'm walking in fellowship with Him. And I see this promise to take no thought for the morrow. What is the work that is going to be produced in my life? What is the natural work? What is the action that this faith will produce? Well, I can tell you this. It won't be honor thy father and mother. That's a whole other promise. That's a whole other area of faith. Rather... It is that I will not fret about the problems of tomorrow, right? So that I could be not fretting about the problems of tomorrow because my faith has produced in me that work while simultaneously dishonoring my parents because I haven't figured out Ephesians 6 verses 1 and 2 yet. That's not inconsistent with the Christian life. It's inconsistent with Christ. You've got to work on that. But it's not inconsistent with the reality of the Christian life, which says I can be victorious in one area because I have come to faith in that area, but I haven't figured out the other ones yet. That's consistent. That makes sense. It would be silly for me to say that because I don't honor my parents, that must mean I don't have faith that God will take care of my tomorrow. That, th- those aren't the same thing. Other than the overarching reality, right, that Jesus is Lord and that the same sovereign God has given me both commands. And so if I trust God for one command, why am I not trusting God for the other command? And that doesn't make any sense. But it, it doesn't make sense either that just because I believe Matthew 6.34, it means I inevitably and invariably believe Matthew or Ephesians 6 verses 1 and 2. It's perfectly natural that some of us might struggle with one promise but not another. And so the fruit of faith in one promise, but not bear the fruit of faith in another because I believe the one and I haven't gotten to the point yet where I believe the next. Okay. Exercise over. Back to saving faith. Justification by grace through faith. The promise of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. When I place my faith in that truth claim, the Bible says I will be born again, I will be indwelled and sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, I will be made a new creation in Christ. Think through it with me. What is the work that is the natural fruit of believing that truth claim. Not a work to gain, the, to, gain, to gain it. Justification by faith. What is the work that justifies my faith? Is some change in my appearance the natural fruit of believing that truth claim? Not necessarily. That may be the fruit of other faith, uh, faith and other commands. When a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior and the Holy Spirit indwells, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You, we, we see at that time of salvation quite often that many changes happen in the life of one who has accepted Christ as their Savior. But those many changes are because it is faith upon faith upon faith. Right? If they believe Jesus is Savior, then they begin the sanctification process and they believe Jesus here and they believe Jesus here. And then at some point, as we all do in our lives, they're going to hit a wall where it's going to be a little harder to trust Jesus in this one area of their life. 
And that area they're going to have to work on and that area they're going to have to pray through. But very early on, we see that there's typically a lot of things that people are ready to just give over to Jesus because they've been miserable in those things. (laughs) But but, But are those the actual production of faith in Jesus's finished work? Is some change in my speech the natural fruit of believing that, that truth claim? No. That may be the fruit of other commands, but, but not the gospel inherently. What is the fruit of believing the gospel? Well, here's the thing. I cannot both have faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ to be my righteousness, to secure me a home in heaven, and also try to earn my way to, to, to heaven, can I? In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, Paul describes, it as this, uh, Paul describes the gospel this way. He says it is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Ceasing my dead works and putting my faith in God alone. The truth claim of the gospel is that it is not by works of righteousness, but by Jesus' finished work. So the natural fruit of me believing the gospel is that I will stop trying to earn my way to heaven through dead works. And if I find that I'm attempting to buy my way to heaven, earn my way to heaven, work my way to heaven, this is a sure sign that my life is not producing the faith that is consistent or the works that are consistent with faith in the gospel. The work that is produced in one who has faith in the gospel is the work of dying to my dead works, the work of rest, the work of ceasing from my dead works and trusting in God. And if my life does produce that certain work, if my life reflects that I have ceased from my dead works and put my faith in Christ alone to be my righteousness unto the end that I have confidence that I will be in heaven with him one day based upon his work and not my own, based upon his righteousness and not my own, then my life is producing the work that is consistent with the claim of faith that I have. What this means, Christian, is that at any given moment, any of us is able to take an inventory of faith in our lives. Where are we in our faith? Saving faith? Faith in any given promise. It's not about whether you mentally believe the promise to be true. It is about what is being produced in your life. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? That's actually going to be the topic, the entire topic of next Sunday morning. So come back for that one. I think everyone needs to hear next Sunday's message. Even if you don't have doubts on that topic, I think everyone needs to hear next Sunday's message. Look for the fruit. Have you ceased from your dead works? Or are you still busy about the futile work of trying to earn your way into reconciliation and relationship with God? Do you have faith that God will provide for you as Jesus promised in Matthew 6? Look to the fruit of your life. Does your life bear the marks of one who is trusting Christ to provide? Or is your life structured around the determination that you are going to provide for yourself? Is, your, is the, the faith you claim producing the work that is consistent with that faith? If it's not, reevaluate whether or not you're actually living out that faith. Do you believe that God has ordained authorities in your life and rewards submission and obedience to them? Whether that's parents, whether that's uh, 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 masters, whether that's government, all of those are spoken of in Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Peter. Well, look at the fruit of your life. 
Does your life bear the marks of one who chooses to trust Christ regardless of the actions of the authorities that are in your life? Or does it bear the marks of one who says, no, God, you have not ordained these authorities, so I reject them. If you reject the authorities God has put into your life, you cannot say you have faith in those scriptural teachings. You can't. It's inconsistent. You're not producing the work that is consistent with the claim of faith. Walk down the commands and promises of Scripture and connect each command to the natural fruit that would be expected in the life of one who honestly and deeply believes the promise to be true, who has faith. And you, and then compare, and I'm not preaching this message so that you can go around comparing others or judging others. Compare this to your life, your actions. Compare your actions against the fruit of a life that believes the promises of scriptures. And you'll know where your faith lies. In Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God. God said, go out and look at the stars, and if you can number them, so shall your seed be. On that day, Abraham said, I'm going to have a child. God told me I'm going to, I'm going to. That child is going to be a child through whom God is going to do this great work. And we know that he had that. The Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. But we see it when seven chapters later, God says, sacrifice your child. And Abraham says, I believe God. I'm in. I'm going to go do that because I'm in. And I trust the Lord. And may our lives reflect the same today. May we... Those who have faith, not have a claim of faith, but have faith. May our lives reflect the fact that we have faith in the manner in which they are lived. And again, anybody can produce moral works. I'm not calling you here today to add an extra layer of self-discipline to your life to produce the works that you want to reflect in faith. No, Have the faith and watch as the Spirit of God produces those works in you. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.